<clears throat> All right, so we here at Livingstone Calvary Chapel, we do expository teaching, which simply means that we teach verse by verse. We go uh, through a book of a Bible, and uh, we start at the beginning, and we go all the way through the end, and we read and study through each and every verse that we come through, and we try to do that in context so that we get the full understanding of what's being presented. Um, when we do this, uh, we typically, I typically don't assign a title to um, the message. A lot of topical studies will have uh, a title for the message so that you know what the, the pastor is going to be teaching. And again, there's nothing wrong with topical studies. We just don't do that here on Sunday mornings. We want you to not only be taught from God's Word, but we want to teach God's Word because God's Word alone has the power to change our lives. Not my words, not the words of any other man or woman out there, but just in the, the words of God, the words of Jesus Christ. But in regards to this chapter, I do want to kind of appoint a title, if you will, in, in regards to just giving us some direction and what we're looking at here in this chapter that we'll go through in two parts. And really what this chapter is talking about is entering into God's rest. I think that's something that we've all heard before. It's a very Christian term. It might even be something that we would categorize as Christianese, meaning a language that only we speak that no one else knows about, right? Entering into God's rest. But we speak about these things often in, in, in platitudes and, and don't really look at the application of that or really what that means or how we do that. And so that's really what this chapter is doing for us. And um, so we're going we're gonna to hit a few key points, look at what the author said, um, but also look at the foundational reason and, and, and um, way in which we today enter into God's rest and what that means. Entering into rest. You know, normally when we think about rest, we think about laying down to go to sleep at night, right? And being rejuvenated, restored, finding, you know, <clears throat> again, the strength for another day. And the same thought process is there in regards to entering into God's rest. But this is, I want you to know this, entering into God's rest isn't something that we as believers are called to do like um, where we set aside a, a time for sleep, we set aside a time to enter into God's rest. God's rest, in the sense that we're talking about, is a place where we live. It's a place where we reside. In other words, we're there as a result of entering into God's rest. There's a certain sense of health and vitality and joy and peace um, that, that we, where we can live with that in, in that place no matter what's going on in our world or in our lives. And so with that being said, I want to briefly recap the foundation that's been set for us in the first two chapters as we now move into chapter three. And one of the first things that we read about is how Jesus is better, specifically in regards, I mean, Jesus is better in, in every way, and the author is kind of detailing that and accounting that, but the foundation reason or, or the reason for why this case is being made for Jesus Christ is this, because we're, we're, we're learning that Jesus is a better messenger who brings a better message, a better messenger who brings a better message. And then having established how Jesus is better in every way, as the author did right off the bat in um, chapter 1, uh, the case for his superiority, for the superiority of Christ was made by pointing out this primary truth that Jesus is divine in nature. He's the only begotten son of God. 
And as a result, he is for us the expressed image and brightness of the glory of God. Meaning that when we've seen Jesus, when we see Jesus, when we come to know Jesus, when we have a relationship with Jesus, we have knowledge of God. We know who God the Father is, God the Creator, through Jesus Christ. As a matter of fact, Jesus would even say to, at one point to his disciples when we read in the Gospels, that if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. And so the, 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 the thing that the author begins to tell us as he begins to build this case for Christ and for Christianity, and we'll talk about that in just a second, is that when we're talking about Jesus, when we're dealing with Jesus, we're not dealing with an ordinary person. God in the flesh. Fully God, fully man. Fully God, fully man. And everything that comes along with that. And even though Jesus, the Son of God, through his humanity, right, as the author writes, logically to his, his audience and to us too, is that even though Jesus, through his humanity, was made to be a little lower than the angels, right, by his humanity, by becoming a man, by taking on flesh and blood with a human nature, he maintained his greatness. He sustained his superiority through, how? If he was like us in every way, but yet not like us, how was that? It says that even with his human nature, he rose above sin and unrighteousness. He was righteous. He was obedient in every way, is what the Bible tells us. Consequently, what we see is that Jesus' humanity was not a weakness. It did not handicap him. It is a weakness for us. It is. We have this sin nature, and you know what we do with our sin nature? We sin. And we do, we do a pretty good job at it, a bad job, a good job of being bad. <laughs> and, and, and there is weakness, there's flaw, there is um, things that we don't obey, right? And consequently, however, with Jesus, Jesus' humanity was not a weakness, it was not a handicap, and ultimately it did not tarnish his crown of glory. On the contrary... Jesus, we're told, through his humanity and by his obedience to God the Father and ultimately in resulting in his death on the cross as he was obedient, the Bible says, even to the death of the cross. And he was crowned with glory and honor, given the crown of glory and honor. In the book of Philippians, we are told that as a result of this, that God the Father has given Jesus Christ the name above every other name. That every knee would bow and every tongue would confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God. Well, the name above every name. And as a result, as we kind of transitioned into chapter, the end of chapter one and into chapter two, the author bounces off of those things and says, because of that, Jesus has become the captain of our salvation. It's like, what has he done with all of that? That relates to us. It says, well, because of all of that and how it relates to us, he's become the captain of our salvation. Literally what that means is the pioneer. He's gone before us. He's paved the way. He's made the way. And in doing so, he's restored back to us that crown, that glory, that honor that was lost at the fall as a result of man's sin and as a result of our disobedience. Remember, in the book of Genesis, we're told about how man sinned. Adam and Eve rebelled against God. They ate from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. The one that God said, don't do that. For when you do that, you will surely die. And everything that had been given to man to, 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 to take care of, to to have glory and honor over was, was lost. And, and we know that it wasn't exclusive to Adam and Eve because the Bible makes it very clear that all have sinned. All have fallen short, short of the glory of God. All of us. And we are all in need. And, and, and as a result of that um, work that Christ did in restoring 
what was lost to us, this is the cool thing. It says that now, as a captain of our salvation, restoring what was lost, now we are called brethren. Jesus says, I'm your brother. I'm your big brother. You're my brother. You're my sister. And meaning that through a heavenly and holy adoption, we know what adoption is. Earthly adoptions, it's the same thing. A heavenly adoption. We as sons and daughters of God, we now, because we're part of the family of God through Jesus Christ, we have partaken, we get to partake of a holy inheritance and a new nature. No longer is it just the sin nature, the old man. There's a new man with a new nature, and it's God's nature, the divine nature of God that now comes to us through the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. In light of this, there are now, with that foundation, with those truths, there are three additional things here in verse 3 that takes us really into this third argument that's presented in the book of Hebrews for the superiority of Jesus. And it's the fact that Jesus is better than Moses. And for us Gentiles, most of us Gentiles, we go, so what? <laughs> Who's Moses to us? And, and I think we can fill in that Moses with a blank and insert lots of other things in our lives that we think that are better than Jesus in, 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 in ways that we live and words that we speak and maybe even what the world puts in. But for the Hebrew people, this is an important argument because the Hebrew people esteemed Moses, to whom this letter was written, Jewish believers, they esteemed Moses as a great hero of their nation. He was their deliverer who had been called by God to set them free as a people, as a nation, from Pharaoh, from their Egyptian bondage, and ultimately to lead them, Pharaoh was to, or Moses was to lead them into the promised land, the land of inheritance, the land of blessing, the land of rest. The land of rest. As we consider that and move forward and look at this in regards to spiritual application to our own lives, there's a key thing that we need to look back to in the book of Exodus that tells us that the Hebrew people, after being delivered out of the land of Egypt, they did not enter into the promised land. They did not enter into God's rest because of unbelief. And we must keep that in the front of our minds as we go forward in our own study through this and relate that to our own lives as maybe one of the causal factors for that keeps us out of the place of entering into God's rest, the rest that God has for us, from, from living in that place that's full of joy and peace and worth and value and, 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 um, and, and all of those things that are found in, in, in vitality and restoration we know that through Moses, in addition to being the deliverer and leader into the promised land, Moses, he was significant to the Hebrew people because through Moses came the laws and the commands of God. Remember there on Mount Sinai, where, where Moses went and spoke with God and met with God, and God said, here, give this to my people, give this to them. They will be my people, and I will be their God. And so the laws and the commands of God came through Moses, but yet in light of this comparison that we're looking at in this chapter, Jesus being the one who was sent to bring God's grace through faith, see, Jesus brings something else. Moses brought the law, the commands as the prophet of God. Jesus brings something else through his death, through his resurrection, through the work that he did. He brings forth grace through faith, and that is greater than Moses because of the rest that is found in Jesus for those who believe is greater. Why? Because Jesus has done all the work. Jesus does all the work. Jesus has made all the promises. Jesus keeps all the promises. And it's important for us to see 
that these next verses, which continue to prove the superiority of, of Jesus now over Moses, are ultimately proving the superiority of, of our Christian faith, of this faith that these Jewish believers had entered into, forsaking Judaism to follow after Jesus Christ. And, and that's really a strong word. They really didn't forsake Judaism. Their eyes were opened up to the bigger picture of that even through Judaism, the law, the commands, the sacrifices, the, the temple, the, and all of that were all always pointing to the Christ, the Messiah, the Savior, Jesus Christ, and how salvation comes only through faith in him. And in light of this question, there's, in light of all these things, I think there's a question that needs to be asked that transcends into our own lives, and I'll explain it just a little bit, but first in the context of the scripture is when we look at this is we go, how could these Jewish believers ever go back to Judaism? Because that's what they were being tempted to do, to forsake following after Christ, the salvation by grace through faith, and to go back to the works of the law and the commands of God, which they could never keep, the sacrificial system. How could they ever go back to those things when what Jesus offers is so much greater than what Moses could offer? But yet, guys, we do the same thing all the time in our lives in various ways where we in some way rationalize our ways, our plans, our desires, our wants are somehow better for us than what Christ has for us or what we can have in Jesus Christ. And the causal factor for why we do that is unbelief. We don't believe what God says about who Jesus is and what his plans are for us. And we think there's a better way. And so we enter into these other things. So here in these, this chapter, we read now in verse 1 of chapter 3, it says, Therefore, holy brethren, partakers of the heavenly calling, consider the apostle and high priest of our confession, of our faith, Jesus Christ, consider him who was faithful, verse 2, to him, God, who appointed him, God, as Moses was also faithful in all his house. So there's a comparison that's being made here to illustrate a point of contrast as we read on. For this one has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses. Inasmuch as he who built the house has more honor than the house, for every house is built by someone, but he who built all things is God. And Moses indeed was faithful in all of his houses. Not that he's slamming Moses. Moses was faithful in everything that he was called to do and all that he did. As a servant, he says, for a testimony of, uh, a testimony of those things which would be spoken afterwards. In other words, Moses was faithful in everything that Moses did. And his faithfulness was a foretelling of something that was to come. That was better. And of course, that was Christ. All the Old Testament, the sacrificial system, the tabernacle, the temple, the laws and the commands of God were all designed to point people forward to the coming of the Christ, a foretelling of these things. And that's what the author says here, as a testimony of those things, which would be spoken, would, spoken afterwards, after him, but Christ as a son over his own house, whose house we are, I love that, but Christ, as a son, the son of God, over his own house, whose house we are, if we hold fast to the confidence and the rejoicing of hope, firm to the end. Firm to the end. Now in these first verses, specifically, let's just look at verses one and two to start off with. There are three important things for us to consider in light of this word, therefore. If you're taking notes, we're going to direct our attention to three different things. Three things 
that, that follow this therefore, and this therefore directs us back to the previous chapter where we are left at the end of verse 2 with this picture of Jesus Christ being our heavenly high priest. And we've talked about what that means in the, in the previous studies. You can go back and look at that. But it, it, it regards to do with, with intercession and, and so many other things. And, and, and so it's important with this picture because this truth about Jesus being our high priest, hear this. This picture, this therefore statement, what takes us back to this picture of Jesus being our heavenly high priest, it teaches us something about who we are who we are in light of who Jesus is and in light of what Jesus did. And understanding who we are in light of who Jesus is and what Jesus did is healthy for, is essential for a healthy Christian life, for a, for a godly Christian life. In order for us to reap the full benefits of what God has appointed to us. In other words, we're talking about issues of identity. That's a, that's a big word in the, the society, in the culture that we live in today, right? Identity. Even to the point where we are now wrongfully have put out there in society gender identity. And at the root of that is what we're talking about here because it's just another mean by which man is trying to fabricate something to find some kind of rest in, some kind of hope, some kind of peace, some kind of value, some kind of self-worth. And pretty much man is, is in, in so many ways has, has exhausted every other way that we've tried to find our identity in that we have to now through the influence of the enemy, generate and fabricate all these other things. Gender identity, when God says clearly, in the beginning, God created them male and female. Again, and that's, the, the point of this isn't to rock on what, where we're at now in, in, in this gender identity crisis that we're facing as a nation, but just to say that we're talking about issues of identity and we can look at the, 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 how far we can take that in, in our search for rest. And for a pe- person who believes in Jesus, if, if the who we are and what we are is not defined by, if it's not found in Jesus Christ, then our Christian life will be he- unhealthy. It'll be ungodly. And this is so important because there are many forces in this world, we see it every day, many forces in this world that are trying to define us. Is there not? Many forces in this world that are trying to define us and things in this world that we're tempted to try and find our identity in. Literally what that means is our worth, our self-worth, our value. Where we go, this is who I am and I find value and self-worth in this. This is how I want to be identified. This is who I want to be identified as. And the thing about it, I know I spoke about the gender identity thing, but it's not always this sinful or inherently sinful or negative thing that we do that with. Like, for example, I'm a, I'm a husband. I'm a father. I'm a grandfather. I'm a pastor. By the way, my grandbaby's here today. She's so cute. Where was I? Got a second. You know, and, and so those things are godly things in their right place, in their right time, in their right position, 
in the right value or status that I appoint for that in my life. That's not what identifies me. That's not who I am in the sense of what we're talking about and where we need to be. And many of you are some of those things as well. Moms and wives, ladies, I don't want to leave you out. You know, men, we struggle with this in the sense that you meet someone new, you're like, hey, my name's Sean, how are you? And it's like, well, my name's Bob, nice to meet you. Bob, what do you do? What do you do? You know, and it's like the first thing off of our lips because our profession as men, we find so much value and self-worth in that. We have an identity in that, maybe even an identity crisis in that or in these things. Our identity, our worth, our self-worth, our value, our importance. And these things, guys, if it's anything apart from Jesus Christ, there will never be any rest in it. It'll, it'll only leave us confused. Think about that in light of what I'm talking about and look at the broad, the broad spectrum of what that can apply to in this world that we live in. This is why this world's full of confusion, in part. This is why this world and people in this world feel empty. You know, so sad. So sad. Suicide right now is, is rampant. You know, I'm, I'm, I have the privilege of being able to be one of the high school wrestling coaches this year. And we were at Westcliff for a tournament yesterday. And in Pueblo Central was one of the, the teams there. And the team, that the kids were there. They were just heartbroken and, and, and distraught and emotional. And we come to find out like three days before that, one of their team members committed suicide. You know, it's just one of many stories that we hear. And the coaches thought it would be a good idea, and I think it was a good idea to keep the team together and to come to this tournament as well, you know, rather than to be all separated and isolated. I think the coaches did a wonderful job. But I'm confronted with it, and I know you're confronted with it all the time. As people are searching for something to give them value and self-worth that, that leaves them just confused and empty and wanting without rest, without joy, without peace, without hope. So according to what we read here in verse one, because of who Jesus is, hear this in the contrast of what we're talking about, because of who Jesus is, because of what Jesus did, that's the key, that's the key factor, is because of who Jesus is and because of what Jesus did and according to what Jesus now declares about us, we, our identity, we are holy brethren. Do you see it here? Sons and daughters of God. Tell me anything in this world that gets better than that. Someone can attack us and our, 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 our identity and whatever. Oh, you're just, you're, you know, you're not a good dad. Not all the time. You know, all these things. You know, you're not a good worker. All, well, not all the time. All this and whatever. But, you know, it's kind of like, I'm a, I'm, a, I'm a son of God. Who cares? Who cares what you think about me? You know, in that sense. Come on. This is what Jesus says. And this is how Jesus regards us, and this is who we are in him. Remember, back in chapter 2, verse 11, we're told that our heavenly, as this therefore relates back to that, our heavenly and holy high priest, hear this, is not ashamed to call us his brethren. I don't know about you, but I have family. Do you guys have family? Do you have some family that you're kind of like, eh, I don't know if they're part of my family. You might have some shame or ashamed some, you, you know, to, to identify with them. Just keeping it honest. For my family who's watching online, I love you all. You know who you are. <laughs> Just kidding. 
kind of. <laughs> but Jesus is not ashamed to call us his brethren. What tops that? You understand what we have? Who we are? And because of who he is. Because of what he's done. And this amazing truth, I don't know about you, but it should bless us. It should encourage us because it means, as verse 1 goes on to tell us, think about it. What does that afford to us? This is what it says, that as sons and daughters of God, we are now partakers of a heavenly calling. A heavenly calling. And this truth is rooted what we read again back in chapter 2, verse 10. This is the therefore where we're told that Jesus is committed Again, this really powerful word, Jesus is not ashamed to call us our brethren, and he's committed to bring many sons to glory. Committed. The Bible says keep your word, even to your own hurt. But who here can raise your hand and say you've always done that perfectly? You've been committed to the things that you said you would do. None of us. But Jesus, who is faithful, even the Bible says when we are faithless, is committed to bringing many sons to glory. What does that mean? Not only does he now consider us his big brother, righteous sons and daughters of God, he says, Dad, here's my family. Here's my brother. Here's my sister. They're part of us. And to be a partaker, think about it, simply put, it means we share in something. If you're a partaker of something that I have, you share in what I have. You're a part of it. To take part of something, and in the context of what we're reading here, we see that this heavenly calling refers to a few things. It refers to our final destiny, right? But I'm here to tell you it also refers to our purpose here on this earth. And so many people are searching for for identity, to put their identity in something or someone or something that's fabricated in this world that is full of emptiness because they feel like they don't have any purpose here on this earth. They go, my life has no purpose. My life has no value. But in Christ, there's purpose, a heavenly calling, an eternal destiny, a final destiny, a a, a purpose here on this earth. And ultimately, the day-to-day perspective that we live with is a part of this heavenly calling. In other words, we are to take part as partakers, right? We are to take part in a perspective that reflects our heavenly calling in all that we do, in all that we say. And to embrace a heavenly calling, what does this mean practically? Is to embrace an eternal perspective. And holding to this eternal perspective will affect how we live here on this earth while we look forward to when we step from time and into eternity. And it's a struggle. I get it because we live in the here and now. We live in this temporal world that affects us in every way, that offends or gives, gives sense of offense or sense of pleasure to all of our senses. And it can be tempting in a struggle to, to live with this eternal perspective because we're in the temporal. But part of that heavenly calling goes, goes this, we go, this is not my final place. This is not it. There's more to come. There's a hope for me. There's a promise for me. This isn't real in that sense. What's to come is real. I love it when 
talking about the issues of the heart in this biblical Bible study that we're going on in marriage, one of the things that um, Ted Tripp talks about is he says, you know, the Bible talks about the heart, and it's the, it's the seat of, of man. It's your thoughts. It's your emotions. It's your will. It's the, it's the soul. It's, it's, it's the, the spirit. It's, it's, and, and, and the Bible talks about man in two parts, that part, the heart, and the outer part, the body. And he said, it's like this, it's like our bodies are like a space suit for an astronaut. This is our earth suit, right? And everything else that is inside is our heavenly, eternal suit that's going to go and continues to live on. And we know that one day that we'll get a different um, physical body, but it'll also be an eternal suit as well. But we must live with that perspective that this is going to pass away and there's something more to come. Furthermore, as we break this down practically, having a heavenly calling is having a part, a part, having a part, talking about our purpose again in something much larger than ourselves. We've got to love that. As much as our flesh hates that, we've got to love that because before we came to Christ, you know what we live for? Self. That's what the world's living for, is self in one way, in some form or some fashion, and it's empty. It's, it's, it's empty. We have a part in something much larger than ourselves and then in turn being other-centered and not self-centered, others-focused and not self-focused affects the rest of the body of Christ as our thoughts and our actions are focused on bringing glory to God and not bringing glory to self. So ultimately, I think it's a call to walk in the freedom that Jesus purchased for us. Again, considering the law and the commands sacrifices, the feasts, everything that was bound with what Moses brought, which is better. A heavenly calling is to lovingly walk in the freedom that Jesus purchased for us, right? We partake of something that he has. Freedom, grace, forgiveness, mercy. To live free from condemnation of our heart. No condemnation found in God. No condemnation found from other men. The freedom that Jesus purchased for us and to live lives ultimately of holiness not in of ourselves, but through Jesus. We partake of his holiness, right? We're righteous because he's righteous. His righteousness has been imparted to us. He's doing a work. He's going to do a work through us. Jesus living in us. And it's a call to partake of an intimate relationship. This heavenly calling is ultimately a call to partake of an intimate relationship with the only begotten Son of God in the context of us being his body here on this earth as we seek to be an active member of the church, the church. And it's a call to embrace Jesus in us and to cooperate with his abundant grace in order to see him live through us. In other words, Jesus came to, to, to impart grace, to minister grace, and he calls us to be ministers of grace. Those who have received God's grace, his undeserved favor, his undeserved merit, all the work that he's done, where he's set on the cross, it's finished, paid in full, it's done. That work that we enter into, where God's done it on our behalf, we then get to impart into the lives of others as we are receivers of God's gr grace and then bearers and givers of God's grace. Purpose. And when we consider these two things, what are they? The first is that we're holy brethren. Number two, who take part of a heavenly call. There, there's there, of a heavenly calling. Guys, there's great encouragement. When, I hear, when you hear these things, isn't there encouragement? Encouragement found to press on and to cling to Jesus even through difficult times and trials. 
where we, where we go, no, that really isn't going to be better. Where discouragement comes. When trials come and we go, there's got to be something different than this. No, there's not. Well, there's a lot of things different, but there's nothing better than what we have in Christ. But ultimately, the third and most important thing for us to consider in light of this therefore statement found in verse 1 is that Jesus, as it goes on to say here, is the apostle and high priest of our confession, literally our faith. In this, this call, think about this word, this, 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 this word to consider, right? It means that we're to observe Jesus attentively. Observe him attentively. To observe Jesus, who according to verse 2 was faithful to God, just as Moses was faithful to God, but in this call to consider Jesus and his faithfulness in comparison to Moses and his faithfulness, the writer goes on to make some clear distinctions between Moses and Jesus for us to pay attention to, for us to consider. To begin with, the Jews knew Moses to be a mighty prophet of God who delivered God's law, right? And then exercised the function, functions of priests. He was, he was um, an intercessor for the people. As a matter of fact, they're like, Moses like, God wants to meet with you. They're like, no, you meet with him for us. And so as a prophet of God, we know that Moses was called by God, as us was all prophets, we come to the burning bush passage of Scripture where Moses is, Moses is out there with his sheep. He sees the burning bush, right? And he's like, sees it's not consumed. I'm telling you the short cliff note version of it. Moses is kind of like, wow, what's going on? And the voice of God comes from the bush. It says, Moses, take off your shoes. You're on holy ground. And then Moses was called by God through that. And Moses is all, no, nah, don't send me. Send someone else. So him and God work it out. God, God, God works it out, and Moses goes, but he was called. He was called by God. But look, in contrast to that verse here, Jesus is called the apostle, right? Why is that? Because this literally means one who is sent by God. Jesus wasn't called by God like Moses. He was sent by God to us. That's amazing, Especially when we consider what Jesus was sent for. And according to John chapter 3, verses 16 and 17, it says that God so loved the world that he what? He sent his only begotten son. That whosoever would believe in him would not perish and have everlasting life. Verse 17, and not to condemn the world, right? He wasn't sent to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be Saved, And as we consider this, we understand that Moses was called to be the prophet of the law while Jesus was sent to be the apostle of grace. That's better. That's so much better. And not only this, but Jesus, according to verse 1, is also referred to as the high priest. And just for the fact of the matter, we know that Moses, even though he acted in the, the position of a priest, he never occupied the role as high priest. Furthermore, Jesus' ministry as the high priest has to do with this heavenly calling in our lives. Meaning Moses ministered to a people whose calling and promises at that time were primarily earthly. Speaking of a deliverance from Egypt, right? They were in bondage. Pharaoh enslaved them. Moses came and delivered them out of Moses. Out of, out of, Moses delivered them out of Egypt. It was a 
physical deliverance. And the promise of inheritance for them at that time was a land, a place, a physical place on this earth. The land of Canaan flowing with milk and honey that God promised to give to them, that they didn't enter into because of unbelief. But Jesus, in contrast to that, as the apostle and as the high priest of a heavenly people, are, are the priest, he's the priest of a heavenly people who, according to 1 Peter chapter 2, now this is us, that we now are a people who are strangers. It says we're foreigners, pilgrims on this earth that this is not our home, that we're just passing through. This is not all that there is. Our inheritance is a heavenly inheritance, one that does not fade away. We are a people who have been delivered, not out of Egypt, which is a spiritual picture of the foretelling of what was to come in Christ, but a picture of the world, a picture of sin, and a picture of death. And we are those people who have been delivered through faith in Jesus Christ from sin and death and in turn promised an eternal inheritance, eternal life, part of that heavenly call. And therefore, we've been given a heavenly citizenship to an everlasting kingdom that is not of this earth. Is that not awesome? Is there not rest in that, hope in that, peace in that? So right away, we see and understand a couple of reasons for why Jesus is greater than Moses, and we understand why we, in light of these things, are called to consider. Consider Jesus. You're doubting? Consider Jesus. You're struggling? Consider Jesus. You feel beat down? Consider Jesus. Consider Jesus to observe him attentively. 4, verse 3, this one, Jesus, who has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses, inasmuch as he who built the house has more honor than the house, for every house is built by someone, but he who built all things is God. And Moses, indeed, was faithful in all of his house as a servant, that's a key word, for a testimony of those things which would be spoken afterwards, but Christ as a son over his own house, whose house we are, if we hold fast, to the confidence and the rejoicing of hope until the end. Now, this word house that's used in these next four verses is, is repeated six different times. I don't know if you know that. You can count it and see. And each time, I know you know this, but I just want to put it out there. It, it's not a reference to a material building. It's, it's, there's an analogy. There's a metaphor being used here. And, and, and that word house is speaking of the people of God. The people of God as the nation of Israel were the people of God. That was a house that God built through, through Abraham, right? And we know the, 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 the genealogy and the line of descendants that took place after that. But also it's referring to us, the house that Jesus built, the people of God. And, and the point of contrast that is being made with this reference to the people of God is that Jesus is greater than Moses because he is the builder of the house and not just the servant in the house or an overseer of the house like Moses was. And once again, we, shall, we, should see, we should see how this statement about Jesus being the builder of a house points, again, foundationally and primarily to the divine nature of Jesus. In that Jesus, who is the only begotten Son of God, is also God the Creator. In other words, follow the logic of reason. 
If God built all things, as it says here, and Jesus Christ built God's house, as it says here, then Jesus must be God. Remember back in verse 2, a comparison was made here. A a comparison was, was made saying that Moses and Jesus were both faithful to the ministries that they were appointed to. However, a primary difference is pointed out in these verses that follow, which point out how Moses was, it says here, I told you to underline it there, pay note of a faithful servant of God, but Jesus is the Son of God. In other words, Moses served in the house, and here's the key word, Jesus, in contrast, in a better way, in a superior way, Jesus is the Lord of the house. Not a servant, not an overseer, but the Lord of the house, which according to verse 6, is who? Is us. If we hold fast to the confidence and the rejoicing of hope firm to end. And this rejoicing of hope that we're being called to hold on to, you, you probably you get this, is Jesus. That's what we're called to hold on to. Our confidence, our hope. Reason for our rejoicing, it's Jesus. If we're holding on to him, firm to the end. And this rejoicing of hope that we're talking about is ultimately holding on to the work that he has done for us. Not that we enter into a new work by holding on. It's holding on to the work that he has done for us and the work that he has promised to do and everything that we know him to be. And even though it should be obvious, and I'll just I'll, I'll, I'll say this for the sake of clarity, it should be obvious that Jesus is the captain of our salvation. He's the sustainer of our salvation. Even though that's obvious since it's already been pointed out in the first two chapters and reviewed a little bit already, I will explain that this holding firm to the confidence and this hope in Jesus is not something that we now must do in order to sustain our salvation. Okay, hear that. Rather, what it is is it's something that simply proves or bear evidence that, we tr- that we're truly born again and that we are of God's house. This is, I am in Jesus. I am in his house. And this is where I reside. This is where I abide. Holding on to the confidence of this and everything that this means. Putting my faith in this till the end. And the same encouragement can strengthen us. Well, let's put, I'll put it this way. The encouragement, first of all, that's found in verse 6 to hold firm to the end. Again, contextually, contextually speaking, it was given to those who felt like turning back to Judaism, right? There were all kinds of societal pressures being put on these people at this time. They were being persecuted unto death as followers of Jesus Christ. They were being excommunicated from their families, from their home, from temple. Everything about the Hebrew people and their culture was was saturated into the way that they lived their lives. And now they were excluded from it because of followers of Jesus Christ. And there was this great temptation to go back and to to forsake Jesus for the comfort of these other things, for the acceptance from others. And and, and this encouragement that, that was being given here now to strengthen them from turning back to Judaism was all centered around explaining the benefits of continuing on with Jesus. There's a benefit to continue on with Jesus. Don't get out of the boat. Don't jump off the bus. That's the kind of thing. Stay in this house. And the same encouragement, I think, can strengthen us when we find ourselves, and I'm going to get real here, and, 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 and I'm just going to be completely honest and speaking from my own perspective in regards to things that I go through that I know that others go through and probably you go through as well but I think it can strengthen us when we find ourselves doubting 
our faith when we don't have confidence. To consider Jesus attentively, who he is, what he has done, the promises that he has made, the work that he's still yet to do, all of these things. Consider Jesus when we doubt or when we grow weary because of this sinful world. Do you ever look around and just grow weary because of the sinful world? how it affects you and how it's a burden to you, how it afflicts your soul. Sometimes I feel like Lot in those words that it says that Lot, a, a righteous man being in, in Sodom and Gomorrah, even though he shouldn't have been there, it says his soul was tormented every day. I feel like that sometimes. And I'm sure you do too when this, you see this world growing darker. I think that's why we pray, Lord, come, Jesus, come. Growing weary quickly. <laughs> Or how about this? How about when we grow weary because of our own sinfulness? When we don't have to look any further than the the end of our own nose as we stare in the mirror and see our own weakness, our own faults, our own failures, our own rebellion, where you go, I'm just sick of me. I'm sick of my sinning. I'm sick of my human nature, my sin nature. God, deliver me from this body of death as the Apostle Paul prayed just like that wretched man that i am there's discouragement in those moments guys just to be completely honest but there's encouragement found and strengthening found when we consider these things in the middle of those of those times or how about when we doubt god's work or the work that he is doing or when we're growing weary as we wait on the work that he's promised to do. I mention these things not only on my own, but if you read through the Psalms, David and all the other psalmists, they write about these same exact doubts and discouragements. It's real. It's, it's part of being a Christian. It doesn't make you unchristian. It just makes you human. But the answer is Jesus Christ. There's hope for us in the midst of these real-life discouragements and doubts and fears. But listen, as sons and daughters of God who have a heavenly calling, we trust in God who is good and who is working his sovereign plan in this world that God who began a good work in us will complete it until the day of Jesus Christ, just like it says in Philippians chapter 1, verse 6, right? That God, like it says in the book of Romans, is working all things together for good for those who believe in him, for those who are called according to his purposes, those promises, and many, 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 many like them that assure us when our eyes don't see what our faith tells us to press on and to press in and to continue into Jesus. You see, the bottom line is, hear this, that God has a work to build through his people. Hear this again. Maybe you didn't hear it. The bottom line is that God has a work to build through his people, us, the church, even as one might build a house in that it is a process that takes time. If you've ever had the blessing of building a house, remodeling a house, (laughs) having a house built, you know with it can come great frustration, discouragement, when you get your eyes on the process. But in relationship to this analogy that's taking place here, it's a process. God's doing his work in this world and in our lives and in the church, through the church, through our lives, into this world. And you know what? I'm here to tell you, his will will be done. Amen? And so these verses point out how Jesus being the creator, the builder of this house is, and you know what? Let's real quick. I got to say this. It's, it's some, if you are just looking at the world today, 
looking at the politics, looking at the social and, and, and cultural constructs that are, are so, so trying to define our, everything that you get it. You can look at it and go, you're like me. It's like, it's times I'm going, it's all lost. Just give up. You know, let them have it. It's not theirs. It's the creator's. It's his. He made it. He's redeemed it. He will restore it. It's not lost. There is a work that God is doing, and even though we may not see how that work can come to pass, we must have the faith. We must have the hope. We must keep our eyes on Jesus and be in Jesus because we know how the end of this thing plays out. We are victors. We are not victims. And we don't need to walk around in this world, in this darkness, with our heads hanging low, with no joy, with no peace, with no hope like the rest of the world, because our God, our King, our Savior, our brother is ruling and reigning. And he's coming back, and he's going to set up his throne, and he's going to make all things wrong right. That's our hope. That's where we live. And so these verses point out how Jesus being the creator, the builder of the house is greater than Moses and we can find rest and comfort that Jesus will perfectly care for, this is what we're told, each member of his family. You and I, we're a member of God's family. Jesus has the responsibility, the privilege to care for us. Before we move on, I want to take, not move on, before we close, I want to take a real brief look at this statement, verse 6, where it says, Christ is a son over his own house, whose house we are. And I want to take note of this because this statement is also pointing out that we are a dwelling place for God. That's not, that's not an analogy. It's not a metaphor. It's not figurative. This is literal. And if, you're, if you've never heard that before and you're not familiar with Christian talk, <laughs> Um, you're probably going, that's a mind-blowing thing. Yeah. And for us who have been believers for 30, 40, 50 years, we still go, yep, that's a mind-blowing thing. But we need to live in that mind-blowing state, guys, where we are amazed, live in amazement of this truth. This amazing truth that we perhaps take for granted. You see, the statement about Jesus being over his own house, who we are, it really has a dual reference. The first is in regards to the church as a whole, being the body of Christ, the place where God dwells. This truth is spoken of in passages like Romans chapter 12, verses 3 through 5, and Ephesians chapter 1, verses 20 through to 23. I'll read that, which says this, And God placed all things under his feet, Jesus' feet, and appointed him, Jesus, to be the head over everything for the church, which is his body the fullness of him who fills everything in every way in other words he who is all in all and we know that jesus who is the head of the church he dwells with us as as the church he he, he is among us and we trust and know that god is here with us now and with us every time we gather together in his name but perhaps the the, the second reference is, is is more powerful in regards to that it has a, a personal application in that we as members of the church or individuals of the church are also the house of God, meaning we're a place that God has purchased, the Bible says, with his own blood and built up in order that he might come to live in us. 
The Apostle Paul, writing to the Corinthian church, speaks about it. He says, do you not know? Chapter 3, verse 16, 1 Corinthians, that you are the temple of God and the Spirit of God dwells in you also. Do you not know? And in 1 Corinthians 6, verses 19 to 20, it says it again. Or do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God, and you are not your own? Why? Whose house are we? We are his house. We are not our own. For we were brought with a, bought with a price. Therefore, what do we do with this? Glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. In this amazing thought to think that we are the house of God to live in, that our body is the dwelling place of the Holy Spirit, who in turn imparts himself to us, making us person who now shares in the loving nature of God, meaning that we are people are known by grace and mercy and forgiveness, right? We're in so then the Holy Spirit of God imparts himself to us. And the Bible refers to this in Galatians chapter 5 as the fruit of the Spirit being manifested in our lives, which is love, joy, and peace, and long-suffering, and kindness, and goodness, and faithfulness, and self-control. And I think we often forget, as the worship team wants to come up, I think I do, and I'm sure you do too, we often forget that we're God's house. And that it's His desire for us to be a holy house for Him to dwell in. Listen, this is your identity. Yeah, Jesus is my brother. I'm a son of God. You know what? He lives right here. <laughs> I'm his house. People are like, you're crazy. He, he's, we're his house. In a house, he desires that we are a house that brings glory to his name. What house, what house are you? Whose house are you? I think we often forget, here's the reason why, because the fact of the matter is even though we sincerely say, guys, do we not, that we want God to be in control of our lives, we hate to give up control. And I don't know about you, but it's usually only after I've made a mess of things before I'm willing to give it back to God, to give back to God what is rightfully His. I'm like, give me that. God's all, that's mine. And then I mess it up and I'm like, okay, you can have it. Can you, can you fix it? But these verses in 1 Corinthians, and many others like them, they remind us that, they remind us, listen, that when Jesus died for us, he did so to pay the debt that we owed and purchased us unto himself. And when we realized what Jesus did for us, when we came to know his great love for us, you know what we did? We invited him to be our Lord and our Savior, did we not? And we, we, we did so because we trusted Jesus to faithfully care for us. So we must, as verse 6 says here, hold fast to the confidence that we have put in Him. What confidence did you put in Him to be your Lord, to be your Savior, to be your sustainer, to be your captain, to be the author of your faith, the finisher of your faith, to be the one to complete the good work in you that he began, the one who has stored up the promise and the hope of eternal life, to put our confidence in him as we rejoice in hope that we have. Hold fast. How? By living our lives in Jesus Christ. 
and doing so in a way that brings glory to him. Father, may that be our prayer. May we consider you today attentively. May we hold firm to you to the end. Lord, hold firm to us. Lord, we know you do. You say that you're faithful to us even when we're faithless. Thank you, Lord, that you're not ashamed of any one of us. May our confidence be found in you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.